in this personal letter to Timothy, Paul gives him four charges, and we've seen one in each chapter thus far. In the first chapter, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. In chapter two, a reminder that the way of the Christian may involve suffering, but certainly requires endurance. And then in chapter three, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. And we began several weeks ago to look at the fourth charge, which is found in verse number two of chapter four. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. And to review a bit, because last Sunday Ben spoke for us, um, the issue may come up that what we've been studying here in Second Timothy, since it is a personal letter to Timothy, um, do these charges really, uh, do they apply to us? Um, particularly if you look at the end of chapter uh, three, where he talks about that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, um, is, is in fact Paul writing to Timothy and we are included, or does this have any meaning for us? It's not an unimportant question, by the way. Um, I remember as, as a kid, we used to sing in Sunday school, every promise in the book is mine, every chapter, every verse, every line. To which now I would say, no, that's not true. Because these, the letters particularly, were written to specific situations, to specific individuals, and we are listening in on, we are trying to gain from what they have been told, but they aren't necessarily addressed to us. We should never lose sight of that. But as we read these letters, even though they're not addressed to us, we have a great deal that we can learn. So, for example, uh, in chapter 3, we have one of the great statements in Scripture about the nature of inspiration, the nature of Scripture, that all Scripture is breathed out by God. So, here in this last chapter, we have the fourth and final charge that Paul is giving. And so, the charge is found in verse number 2. The basis of the charge, however, is found in verse number 1. And then reasons for this charge we will look at today in verses 3 through 8. And then finally, at the end, we have real, a personal illustration from Paul's own example while he is a prisoner in Rome awaiting his death. So the charge is found in verse number 2. If you will look at 2 Timothy 4, verse number 2. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. The charge can be seen or heard in three words. Preach the word. I would point out, and I didn't the last time I spoke, that there are actually five imperatives here in verse number two. Five commands. Preach, be prepared, correct, rebuke, and encourage. But I'm taking them as a single unit in which Paul charges Timothy to do one thing, and that is to preach the word. And the other things go along with that. Timothy knows what the word is. It is God's word, what God has spoken and later in this chapter, we hear of sound doctrine and the truth and the faith. At that time, it consisted of the Old Testament scriptures that God had breathed out and was useful, was profitable, as we've seen. Timothy is to preach this word. What does it mean to preach? So does this mean that it doesn't apply to those people who don't preach? Well, simply speaking, it means to proclaim the truth. Timothy is to speak out what God has already spoken. He is not only to hear it, though he is to do that. 
or to believe it or to obey it, to guard it, to suffer for it, to continue in it. All of those things are true, but it is not something that is to stay inside. It is not to be internalized and left there. It is to come out. It is to be externalized, if you wish. He is to speak the truth. He is to preach the word. There are four marks which are to characterize his speaking the truth. He is to be prepared. And here is the second imperative. He is to be ready. It implies that as he speaks the truth, he's not to do so in a careless way, as though it lacks purpose. Um, When he speaks the truth, it should always be clear, I think. It should be purposeful. It isn't something that's just sort of slipshod and just sort of, you know, just play it by ear, so to speak. The proclamation is to have a purpose. And here we come to the last three imperatives, imperatives, correct, rebuke, and encourage. And this suggests at least three different ways of proclaiming the truth. The first is, I would say, the intellectual, the correcting. And then there is the moral, correcting our behavior, rebuke. And then finally, the emotional, challenging our hearts. He is to encourage And I think, in fact, there you could say there should be at least three different types of preaching. Um, That which is intellectual, that which is moral, and that which is emotional. You could say that all preaching should have at least some aspect of each one, but sometimes some gravitate more to one approach than the other. Then there is to be patience. um, With great patience and careful instruction. It is God who changes people's hearts. And so the one who is speaking the truth, if you speak the truth to your friend, if someone says to you, what exactly is it that you believe? And then in a very short and concise and a clear way, you express to them the gospel and they're like, oh, okay, just wanted to know. And you're like, oh, I, I I thought they would be converted, that they that something would happen in their hearts. With great patience we are to speak the truth and to know that it is God who does what needs to be done in his time. We are the instruments of proclamation. We are to proclaim God's truth. But it is God who brings about the change in people's hearts. And then there is to be careful instruction. Timothy is to preach or proclaim the word with careful instruction. It has been suggested, by the way, that preaching is for unbelievers and teaching is for believers. Um, You know, all these years later, I'm still not completely clear on the difference between preaching and teaching. I think because, well, I think when I was growing up, preaching meant speaking more loudly and teaching was more subdued. Um, I think that preaching is the application of truth Teaching is the proclamation of truth and that the two, in fact, should go together. So whether you're speaking to unbelievers or to believers, if you are speaking the truth, there is to be that element of instruction and there is to be the element of application and a call to action to say, this is what God says. Now, what are you going to do about it? This is what you should do. But will you, in fact, do this? I mentioned this several weeks ago. I was once told by a professor of mine, my advisor, in fact, that if I wanted to learn a subject, that I should, in fact, teach it. Because in order to teach, you have to prepare, you have to study. And in the process, you learn the subject. If, in fact, we want to know what it is we are going to proclaim to other people, then we should learn it. 
so that we, in fact, can teach it to others. If Timothy is a faithful preacher, he must be prepared. He must understand and appreciate that not all preaching is the same. Sometimes it gravitates more toward the mind, other times to the heart, sometimes to one's actions, a moral component. And Timothy must be patient and he must proclaim with careful instruction. I don't know if I'm reminded again of the story of a girl who asked her mother, is dad telling the truth or is he just preaching? Um, Preaching oftentimes has lacked in our generation that quality, that component of truth. We are to have careful instruction. We are to be patient. And we, in fact, are to recognize that there's correction, rebuking, and encouragement. And we are to be prepared. Now, the basis of the charge is actually found in the verse that comes before it. It begins, if you look at verse number one, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. And then the charge begins, preach the word. This language, by the way, is very similar to two other passages in the first letter. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. That's in 1 Timothy 5.21. And in the next chapter, the final chapter, 1 Timothy 6, in the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Something should be apparent right away that Paul is not the basis for this charge. He is an apostle. Yes, he is like a father to Timothy. Yes, but the basis, the authority for this charge, in fact, comes from God. All human authority, by the way, is derivative. No one has authority in and of himself or herself. It, in fact, must come from God. All authority comes from God. So, as Paul now talks about the basis of the authority for this charge, as is his custom oftentimes, we find him instructing us in doctrine and theology. Just a side note, and it'll come up again toward the end of the sermon. In Paul's writings, whenever he writes God, he is usually speaking of God the Father. Whenever he speaks of Lord... He is usually speaking of Jesus Christ. And then when he speaks of the Spirit, he is speaking of the Holy Spirit. And so we find a Trinitarian view in him oftentimes, and we may miss it because we're like, well, he says God. Does he mean God the Father, the Son, or the Spirit? Usually he means the Father. And when he says Lord, he means the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the basis for the charge is spelled out here. It is the Father and the Son. He gives this charge in their presence. And as wonderful as that is, I think the emphasis is elsewhere. It is on the Lord Jesus Christ as the judge, as the epiphany, and as the king. Timothy needs to remind, as do we, that the Lord Jesus will judge us at the end of time. He has been appointed to that task. We read this in John 5. Moreover, the Father judges no one. Just a startling statement. The Father judges no one, but he has entrusted all judgment to the Son. 
And then a few verses later in John 5:26, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and he has given all or given authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. So Jesus, Jesus is the one who will judge, judge us. And then in Acts chapter 10, he commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. So in fact, Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, has been appointed for that task. And the nature of that judgment is spelled out in 2 Timothy 5. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. So that's our goal, to please him. Why? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Our salvation is not the issue. The issue is what have we done as God's children, and that we will be judged by the Lord Jesus Christ. Timothy is given this charge to preach the word, to be prepared, to be patient, and to do so with careful instruction. And the basis for this charge is that one day he will stand before Christ Jesus, who judges the quick and the dead. Well, before the judgment comes, he will, in fact, Jesus will return. And the word that is used in Greek is epiphania, from which we get epiphany. And so I refer to him here as the epiphany. His return is in part so that he can judge. Um, Lest we think little about the judgment we should consider that, in fact, Jesus will return, and when he returns, there will be judgment. And then thirdly, that Jesus, in fact, is king. His return is to bring to fruition the completion of his kingdom. As Ben pointed out to us last Sunday, a kingdom requires a king. And if, in fact, we read of his appearing and his kingdom, then we know, in fact, that Jesus is king. Jesus is judge and will judge the world. Jesus is returning, and Jesus is and will be king. Should Timothy and the rest of us not, in fact, pay attention to this charge that has been given? So this is the basis of the charge. We have looked at the charge. Now let's look at reasons for this charge, found in verses 3 through 8. Beyond the basis for the charge, Paul writes to Timothy of reasons why, in fact, he should do what he has been charged to do. The first is found in verses 3, 4, and 5, the contemporary scene. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Because Paul has just written about the epiphany of Jesus, the return of Jesus, what Paul describes here oftentimes is thought of as, oh, this is what it's going to be like right before Jesus returns. I I would disagree. We've already seen that in both letters, Paul has written about the last times, the last days. In 1 Timothy 4.1, in later times, and then in 2 Timothy 3.1, in the last days. These last days are the days that began 
when Jesus came into the world. That began the last chapter of human history. So what Paul is describing here is not something at the tail end of the last chapter. It is something that is a part of this last chapter of human history. One characteristic, I think, summarizes what Paul is talking about here. People will not be able to bear the truth. He expresses this negatively and then positively twice. I want to be careful when I say negatively and positively, but I hope it will be clear. Negatively, men will not put up with sound doctrine. And they will turn their ears away from the truth. And positively, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn aside to myths. So negatively, this, they will turn away from the truth, and then positively, they will turn to error. And that seems to be the reverse, but in fact, they do one thing, and they put something in its place. But let's stop a minute before we go any further. Who is Paul writing about? Is he writing about believers or unbelievers? As we have seen, Paul's concern as he writes to Timothy has to do with the church. It has to do with believers. And even as Zib read to us today from 1 Corinthians 5, that our concern is to be with those within the congregation. We are not to judge those outside the church. So as Paul writes here, he is thinking of those who call themselves the people of God. Again, we do not live in isolation from the surrounding culture, meaning it does, in fact, affect the way that we think. But the focus here is on the church. It's on those who call themselves Christians. And what we find are Christians who have turned away from the truth. Christians who have turned to self-centered or satisfying myths. Simply put, we have believers, or those who claim to believers, who cannot stand the truth and refuse to listen to it. But that's not the end of it. They put something in its place. Since they have rejected the truth, they put a substitute in its place. And they need someone to provide that substitute. And these are the false teachers. We've been reading and we've been studying about the false teachers in both books, in First and Second Timothy. We have seen that some of them are in it for themselves. And one passage I think will suffice to illustrate this from Second, uh, First Timothy 6. Any, if anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. So, what we've seen thus far, we may think that, in fact, the false teachers are the ones who begin this whole process. They're in it for the money. Uh, They think that they can make a lot of money by doing this. But Paul makes it clear here that it isn't just the false teachers who are, in fact, at fault. Because if no one would listen to the false teachers, if there was not an audience for these people, their ministries would quickly dry up and shrivel up. The fact is, there are those who want to hear what these people have to say. They like non-biblical teaching. Or they like biblical teaching that has been twisted. 
they prefer speculation to doctrine. They prefer myths to the truth. It's interesting, I don't know if you caught it, but twice in these three verses, Paul talks about the ears. The itching ears that, you know, they tickle their ears and they turn, they will turn their ears away from the truth. These people are not passive participants. They actively solicit people who will tell them things they want to hear. Okay, Paul has just told Timothy to preach the word. But if, in fact, people don't want to hear the word, what is Timothy supposed to do? Well, for the third time in this letter, Paul says, but as for you, this is what you are supposed to do. And Paul gives four imperatives, uh, sort of staccato commands in verse number five. They fill out the fourth and final charge. They provide a contrast between what Timothy is supposed to do and what these false teachers are doing. First of all, keep your head in all situations. Literally, it means to stay sober. Don't get drunk. Don't, don't be buzzed. You need to keep your head in all situations. By the grace of God, Timothy is to main, maintain self-control. Even if people go for something they go somewhere else because it's more exciting. It's much more speculative and, and things that people want to talk about. Timothy is to keep his head. Secondly, endure hardship. If, in fact, everyone is leaving church because they want to go over to hear so-and-so and what they have to say, Timothy needs to be prepared to suffer. He needs to endure the hardship that may come with it. When biblical truth becomes unpopular and speculation is what people want to hear, it is very tempting for the one preaching to somehow tone down the elements that people don't want to hear and to say the things, to preach the things that people want to hear. The third command is do the work of an evangelist. Now, I, those of you who are raised in church who know the New Testament fairly well, you may be surprised at this. This is only the third time in the New Testament that the word evangelist appears. Because I grew up, we always had evangelists who would come around and preach and we'd have revival meetings and things like that. It's only the third time it appears in Scripture. The first is found in Acts when Philip is described as Philip the evangelist. And then in Ephesians 4, when it talks that Jesus has given gifts to pastors, teachers, uh, apostles, pastors, teachers, evangelists. So what is an evangelist? What comes from the word evangel? Uh, someone who speaks the good news. Um, I usually think of an evangelist as someone who preaches to unbelievers. That if in fact you had a man who said, I want to be the pastor of the church, and okay, what are you? I'm an evangelist. We're like, well, no, we want someone who will speak to the congregation of believers, not to unbelievers. So why would Paul say, if I'm correct, why would Paul tell Timothy to do the work of evangelist if, in fact, he's talking here about believers? I think we need to be open to the possibility that those who prefer speculation and myths to, the doctrine, to sound doctrine may, in fact, not be believers. 
If they were believers, they would want the sound truth. They would want sound doctrine. Just because someone is in church and a regular part of the church or even a member of the church does not mean that that person is a believer. And Timothy needs to be prepared for that possibility. So he needs to be an evangelist, someone who preaches the gospel so that people who are not converted, who are not saved, might be saved by the grace of God. And the fourth imperative is discharge all the duties of your ministry. This sort of wraps up this whole charge up to this point. It's interesting, in Acts chapter 11, uh, Barnabas and Saul, before he became Paul, were sent by the church in Antioch to Jerusalem with a big offering to help the poor there. So that's mentioned in chapter 11. Then you go all through chapter 12, and then at the very end it tells us, when uh, Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem. I think Luke just wanted to remind us that, oh yeah, last time I mentioned them, they were going, and yes, they, they fulfilled their mission. It's the exact same language that is used here. They finish their mission. Timothy is to discharge all the duties of his ministry. Just as those two had finished their work, Timothy is to finish his work as well. Even in the face of those who say, I am a Christian, I am your brother, but I don't want to hear what you have to say. Timothy is to continue and to be faithful. One might imagine that Timothy might be tempted to say to Paul, you don't know what you're asking me to do. You don't know what you're asking me to do. That in fact, it seems that every time we gather as a congregation, it gets smaller and smaller. And this person across the way who is obviously teaching false things, his congregation gets larger and larger. Uh, Paul, you don't know what you're asking from me. But the next verses, I think, put this to rest. And now we come to the last words, the very last words spoken or written by Paul. They're certainly the last that have survived. His death is days away. According to a reliable tradition, he was beheaded before the death of Nero in 68 AD. And for more than two decades, Paul had done the work of an evangelist. He had been a missionary. He was an apostle. And now at the end, he gives Timothy a reason why he should do what he has been charged to do. Look, if you would, at verses 6, 7, and 8. For I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. And here for the first time we learn that Paul expects that his present imprisonment will result in his death. That he is aware that his own ministry is over. And that he knows the prize awaits him. Verse number six, I am already being poured out like a drink offering. This is very Old Testament language that we find um, when it speaks of the various uh, offerings that are to be made at the tabernacle and then the temple. But rather than looking to the Old Testament, I would prefer to look to Philippians chapter two, because Paul uses the same language in writing to the Philippians. 
He writes in Philippians 2.17, But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you, so that you too should be glad and rejoice with me. The picture is that of the drink offering in the Old Testament. A burnt offering was to be offered in the morning and in the evening. And I think this is their sacrifice and service that Paul speaks of. Well, along with the burnt offering was to be a a quart or a liter of wine and it was to be poured out. Um, We don't know if it was actually poured out on the sacrifice or at the foot of the altar. Um, In some ways, I think that's not important. What is important for us to recognize is that the drink offering was secondary. The primary focus of that aspect of worship was the burnt offering. You have the burnt offering put on the altar in the morning and in the evening. And as the offering is being burned, then the wine is to be poured out as a drink offering to God. In Philippians 2, what Paul is telling the Philippians is that they are the burnt offering. They are the main event. They are the center of what he is doing. He's just the drink offering. He's secondary to them. And he's happy with that. He is glad to be something that accompanies what they are doing. He is glad to be the drink offering. In our passage, when we read of him being poured out as a drink offering, I think the metaphor for us the visual picture is that of someone who's dying, that their life is being poured out. And it very well may be that that's what Paul has in mind. But that he refers to himself as a drink offering, I think, points to something else. And that is, he does see himself as secondary. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who is the sacrifice. And he, yes, he is an apostle, he's a missionary, an evangelist. His life is now over. But to him, he's playing second fiddle. He's secondary. That it is Jesus and the gospel that are primary and he is being poured out as someone who is secondary. He is the drink offering and he is content with that. And he says this because we read in verse number 7 that his ministry is over. It's completed. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. He uses the metaphor of athletics. He did this earlier in chapter 2. The three statements in this verse are different ways of expressing the same reality. The finality of things. And that he has done what he was called to do. If you wish, Paul is saying to Timothy, years ago I was charged to do this. And I have done what I was charged to do. And I am charging you, and you must do the same thing. I have fought the good fight. This is not a military metaphor, we might think it is, but it speaks of someone who, in fact, is involved in athletics. The good fight is not Paul's activity. It is what he is called to is something that is a high calling. The calling was noble. I have finished the race. The emphasis here is clear on the fact that for Paul, he now knows his race is over. Not just his life being poured out. His ministry is over. And lastly, I have kept the faith. The first charge in this letter was to guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Paul is telling Timothy, it was entrusted to me and I kept it. And now I've passed it on to you 
and you need to keep it as well. The fight is over. The race is finished. What remains? That is the prize. The future reward. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Several things come to mind. Usually when I hear the word crown, I automatically think of something that is made of gold or silver, some precious metal that has intrinsic value in and of itself. In Paul's day, crowns in athletic uh, situations were not that at all. Some were made of evergreen. Others were made of wild celery. Uh, A garland was made and was put on, and it would last maybe a day or two. Uh, It would still be there, but it wouldn't be fresh anymore because the crown only symbolized something. In and of itself, it did not have value. It signified real accomplishment. And so for Paul, he has in fact done what he was called to do. The crown of righteousness, though, why does he say righteousness? Is it that he's been righteous? Well, we would say that he would disagree with that. Another way to translate the word used here is justification. And I think that there's something going on here. Paul has been found guilty by Nero. That's why he's going to be beheaded. Nero, the emperor, has said, you are guilty. But the Lord Jesus Christ, the king of glory, has justified Paul and knows, in fact, has proclaimed that Paul is justified. The real reality is that the righteous judge is the one who makes the right sentence. By the way, just think of the irony of being found guilty by Nero. Um, Who is Nero? What moral standing does he have to find anyone guilty of anything? And then we come full circle, and I don't know if you caught it. The basis for the fourth and final charge is that Christ is the judge, he is the epiphany, and he is the king. And here at the end, at the end of Paul's ministry, we we see the same three things again. That Christ Jesus will judge the living and the dead. He is also the righteous judge. We read of his appearing in view of his appearing in his kingdom, not only to me, but also to all who long for his appearing. The very thing, the very basis for Timothy's charge, and us as well, is the basis at the end of his life, at the end of his ministry, Paul can say, yeah, this is it. I'm playing second fiddle. I'm not the main act. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And I have finished it. My ministry is over. I have done what I was called to do. And the basis of that commitment, that command, that charge, was that Jesus is judge, Jesus is returning, and Jesus is king. So to those who would say to Paul, Paul, you don't know what you're asking. You're giving me an impossible task. It's the same task that was given to Paul. And Paul, amazingly, at the end of his life, could say, I've done what I was called to do. Last Sunday, Ben showed us how that as Americans, while we claim to believe that God is king, we really don't like kings. I really think that there's much to what he said. But I would suggest that we don't like judges either. 
In fact, I think if you would ask any person if they know one verse in the Bible, it's don't judge. Or judge not lest you be judged. Uh, we don't have a real like for monarchs and we don't for judges either. And to hear of Jesus Christ as the righteous judge doesn't really set well with us. In fact, I think it's easier to swallow that he is king than that he is judge. But it is true that one day each one of us, each one of us in this room, will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and will be judged. This means that our future should in fact inform and direct our present. I need to understand that what I do now, the choices I make now, one day I will have to answer for them before the Lord Jesus Christ. The reality that Jesus will judge us one day should in fact encourage us, it should direct us to do the things that we have been called to do, that we have been charged to do. Jesus is the righteous judge. He is the epiphany. He will be returning. And he is our king. In that light, we should do the things that we have been charged to do. Paul certainly did. And wouldn't it be amazing, wouldn't it be wonderful, if each one of us, at the end of our lives, could say, I fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Let's pray together. Father, in truth, as, as difficult as it is for us to think of kings, it's even more difficult for us to think that somehow we are accountable for everything we do to someone else. In our childish way, we want to, to say, you're not the boss of me. But in fact, the Lord Jesus Christ is our King. He has commanded us. And one day, we will stand before Him and we will have to give account. We will be judged for everything we have said, everything we have done. We have been given a charge We've been given the gospel. We're to guard it, but we're also to speak it. We're to live it out in our lives, in our actions. But as Paul clearly knew, that's more difficult. It's, it's harder to do than it is, in fact, to say. It's so easy to say, I am a Christian. It's easy to say, I believe this and that. It's much more difficult to live it out day after day. And of course we are sinners, we are imperfect, we fail miserably day after day. But by your grace we are to strive to keep the faith, to do the things you've called us to do. By your Spirit may we come to see and recognize and then remember that one day we will stand before the Lord Jesus. We will answer for the choices we have made, for the things that we have done. Whether we have lived according to our own desires or according to your word. 
I thank you that you are gracious. You know that we are feeble and frail. But you've given us the gift of your spirit. May he guide and direct each one of us. May he give us the wisdom we need as we live our lives in the coming days. I thank you that you brought us together today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We do remember Rosa's family during this time. Ask that you would comfort them and forfeit us in Mary Grace as well. God of all comfort and all peace, bring peace to their lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.